if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. If you've been following this podcast lately, then you've met my Protestant friend, Ed Sheaf, who's curious about and considering Catholicism. In previous episodes, we've been sharing our conversations about the faith and Ed's first experience of a Catholic Mass. And if you've listened to those episodes, you know that Ed has talked a lot about church worship music because for 40 years, he worked as a music pastor and worship leader. He started out in Baptist churches, then Pentecostal churches, then non-denominational evangelical churches, and recently in some contemporary Reformed churches. And so, obviously, that's been a focal point for how he's been processing the differences between the Catholic Church and the churches that he's familiar with. So, I thought it would be interesting to explore more specifically the differences between Catholic and Protestant worship music. St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, instructs Christians to sing and make music from our hearts with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But what exactly does that mean? And how does it play out in Catholicism versus Evangelical Protestantism today? What's the purpose of the music in each tradition? How is music selected? What are the challenges for parishes and congregations and the people who plan and lead the worship? So, I introduced Ed to Audrey Thomas, and the three of us sat down for a conversation. Audrey holds a bachelor's degree in organ and church music from the University of Kansas, and a master's degree in sacred music and organ performance from the University of Notre Dame, where she earned various honors and awards. She served as the organist for the Basilica of the Sacred Heart at Notre Dame, and conducted the Notre Dame liturgical choir of 70 singers and was a member of the Basilica's Musical Schola. She has studied and performed Catholic sacred music in Germany and the Netherlands. She now serves as the Director of Sacred Music at Our Lady of the Lake and is an instructor at the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization. In fact, two of her courses on sacred music are in our library of online courses. So, if you're at all curious about church music, I think you're going to be fascinated by the conversation between these two professionals, representing two very different traditions. Now, our conversation was pretty interesting and pretty lengthy, so I broke it up into two episodes. This is part one. Look in the podcast library for part two in the next couple of days. So this is pretty exciting. Uh, welcome, Audrey. Thank you. Happy to be here. And welcome, Ed. Thank you. Um, well, we're just going to dive right into this, and I'm going to put the first question to you, Ed. All right. Uh, from your perspective in the contemporary evangelical Protestant world, 
what is the purpose of music uh, in worship? Uh, what role does it fill? Uh, I should say up front that I'm not necessarily uh, defending any of this, but I would be glad to tell you my experience, how, how it always worked with me. Um, if you've listened to the podcast, you know that I'm, uh, now I'm questioning everything, right? So I'll, but I'll tell you how it, how it's always been. Um, in Protestant churches, it's all over the map. Okay. There isn't, uh, older denominations and charismatic churches, they see church music as being set aside. Um, but they don't have that I'm aware of any rules about the music itself, uh, except maybe the lyrics. Evangelicals, which is where I did the work I did, don't think of any particular music as holy. It's just music. Okay. Uh, we, we used it as a tool, tool to draw people into the auditorium, uh, to hold their attention or to get a point across, or used it to lead people into engaging with God, worshiping and praising and whatever. Um, but we didn't make any real delineation, you know, we didn't. It's, it's interesting because in my time in that world, they always talked about the holy time of worship or holy worship. So what I hear you saying, I'm going to put words in your mouth, but that the music wasn't sacred or holy, but it was to try to create an experience for people where they met the Holy Spirit or whatever. Yeah. That, I mean, that's not a, that's not a bad way to put it. We, uh, we considered what we were doing to be important and all of that. And we wanted people to worship God, although the definition of that was so fuzzy as for me to not really exist, other than to say that we were trying to get people to feel something. That was our whole, that was our whole thing, right? We were, if, if somebody didn't feel, if we weren't moving people, there's a meeting on Monday. You know what I mean? That's, uh, that's, that was what it was there for. So we didn't, yeah, so we used music, I should say it this way, we just used music for whatever it is we thought we needed to get done. Interesting. So now, Audrey, what is the role or the purpose of music in Catholic worship? Yeah, I think for us, um, a large part of our musical experience is um, to clothe the liturgical text. So a lot of it goes back to the, the texts that have been given to us by the church, um, or whether it's scripture or um, whatever text we're using that's sacred and the music is supposed to be at the service of the text. So the text kind of remains prominent. Um, not to say that there's not instrumental music because that's certainly um, a large part as well. Um, but the text certainly is is at the center and we see a lot of that stated in the church documents that kind of give us these guidelines for music. Um, but also in general, the purpose of music is to give praise to God. It's another way of giving praise to him and um, to really add beauty to the liturgy. You know, we see beauty in our vestments and our stained glass windows and all these different parts of the liturgy. And so music is another way that we can add beauty and also add um, a degree of even more, um, I don't know if reverence is the word or, um, but like solemnity on certain days we have certain music or maybe daily masses during the week, we don't have music. So it really helps emphasize certain feasts or solemnities or whatever we're celebrating in that day. So Audrey, you have a degree in sacred music and you are the director of sacred music. And I just heard Ed say that in his context, music itself isn't sacred. So explain the term sacred music. 
Yes. Yeah, so for us, uh, sacred is is set aside. So it's music that's set aside specifically for the liturgy. So you wouldn't typically find this music on the radio or in secular contexts. It was written for this particular um, end in mind and for this particular purpose. Um, so yes, as the director of sacred music, I have to do with every every aspect of music that's related to the liturgy or to the church in general um, at the parish. Now, Ed, I, I heard you say uh, in a previous session that we did that y- your goal, or at least a lot of your experience, was picking music that was off the radio. I mean, a lot of it was, and I, I remember in that world, you would take, say, secular rock songs and rewrite the lyrics, or you would use music that was off the Christian radio or music that sounded like you, I mean, they tried to write music that sounded as close to secular rock music as possible. So that sacred secular thing, you want to speak to that a little more? Yeah, we didn't. um, So we used music um, from the radio, um, which for, for things like preludes and offertories and so forth. And sometimes if they went along with the topic, we would use them. So I remember doing, you know, like every, every 4th of July weekend, I was, I was doing, if I had anything to say about it, I was doing Steve Miller's uh, Living in the USA. Um, I love that song. But, and we would all, so we, I, I was opposed to rewriting the lyrics to secular songs because that seemed horrible and cheesy to me. Um, but that was really common. I mean, you, yes, you may be the was. exception to that rule. There was a right. lot of horrible and cheesy stuff, apparently, because it was really common to do that. So, so the music, so it was always, we always wanted to play something that would be familiar. And in the worship music, um, if I can use that term, which is, I, it's all confusing to me now. But anyway, the, uh, the, the, the worship time, the praise and worship time, we would use typically songs that people knew from the Christian radio. because there wasn't any music to, to read or anything that was just, it was just, you had to know the song. So if we played a song that nobody knew, we'd have to teach it to them by having them sing it back to us and, and so forth. Um, so yeah, the picking of it was always, always popular. So Audrey, with your education as a scholar, that actually raises an interesting question to me because if we look at the broader context of church history, wasn't a lot of classic church music taken from secular music? I mean, didn't uh, they set a lot of hymns to what were like common secular songs from the era? Certainly. We definitely see a lot of secular influences, especially in hymnody um, and different tunes and things that were prevalent in society over time. I think... Um, I think as of late, there's been kind of a re-emphasis on getting away from that, or we just this more, um, this realization of the danger of that. Um, whereas back then, some of those hymn tunes still fit really well, but I almost feel like that's a harder thing to do today with the way that our music is today. Um, it's harder for us to be able to take that and put that in a way that makes sense within liturgy today. I always used to hear that uh, a mighty fortress is our God, that Martin Luther said it to like a German drinking song or something. I don't know if that's true. But. I think I've heard a similar, similar story. I'm not quite sure about the truth of that. So, but. so Audrey, I in your class, you said um, that do things. Yeah, this, I'm glad you brought that up. It seemed that seemed a little bit contradictory to me, or at least I didn't understand it, that, um, that sacred music should be uh, allowed to flow from the traditional music of a particular place. I think this was an older, maybe centuries old, thing that one of the popes said or whatever. 
and and then secondly that it should be set aside and not follow trends uh, so is that more of a longer term thing yes so i think um with the set aside, not following trends, meaning that there's some sort of standard or some sort of consistency, like certainly mm-hmm. our music will evolve over time. Um, but Greg and I have had this conversation of not constantly chasing the next generation um, of like the newest trends on the radio and this constant, each generation has a different kind of music that they listen to. Um, and when it says that it can flow from its native tradition, part of that um, has to do with um, native cultures and letting your culture and your instruments and wherever you're at locally have an influence and not saying that everyone has to do Gregorian chant all the time. And um, so I think letting those, those local and native influences um, really remain a part of it and making it your own, but at the same time, still possessing those qualities of sacredness so that it still fits within liturgy. If that makes sense. I have to say I've, I'm changing my mind about this because I spent my whole life trying to make church music, excuse me, sound like, what I heard on the radio or what I liked. And now I find it sort of comforting to think that what I'm going to go and, and uh, sing or whatever, or experience listen to in the church is something that's specifically set aside for it. I, that, I don't know. It appeals to me. I want to go on another topic, Baudry, but you just said something there that I'd like to hear you unpack a little bit. When you were talking about, other cultures and, and, and incorporating, you know, musical what, styles, perhaps yes. is the right word. Um, and certainly within the context of Catholicism, we try to draw all of those cultures in and always have. And yet there's the sense that there's kind of a standard that you come back to, or at least some kind of a middle that you draw back to. Correct me if I'm wrong. Hasn't, hasn't the, the, the magisterium weighed in on kind of a preference towards Gregorian chant or as, as kind of an ideal, isn't that yes. in Vatican too? Yes. So there's definitely an emphasis on chant um, because chant is the original musical vehicle for the church. Um, and we see this all the way back to the roots of the church and it fits the text so well. Like it really is just about the text. It's easily accessible. Um, anyone can sing it and it really is suited for the text. Um, that being said, it doesn't, you know, disallow other types of music, but it always says that that is sort of the preferred method that is always acceptable, always beautiful, sacred. And if, I mean, if we think about it, we don't really hear Gregorian chant in non-sacred settings. So we do, when we hear Gregorian chant, we're brought back to that. This is a sacred text where, you know, this is a sacred space and it, and it does have that, that connotation. Um, so there's definitely, definitely an emphasis on chant. Can, can you define Gregorian chant for us or chant maybe and then what specifically Gregorian chant is? Yeah. Um, so it's a style of singing. Um, like I said, it's centered on the text. So it's, it's melodic. So it has a melody to it, um, but it's very free. It's not in the standard rhythms or meters that we have today. Um, a lot of it is notated in what you would call Gregorian chant notation. So it looks similar to our standard notation, but it's squares and squiggles. And there's kind of a whole different reading of it as well. Um, but we sing it like we sing a lot of melodies, you know, when the notes go up, we go up and down and, um, it really is suited particularly to Latin, like all the Gregorian chants that are in Latin, it's written for the Latin language, but it is easily adaptable to English or to other languages as well. And then um, it can be sung by a single person. It could be sung by a small scola or choir or the general um, group, but it's really easy to set, especially the text of the mass 
to chant and and also to simple tones. So some of them are quite elaborate and ornate, um, but some of them are also quite simplistic so that the average person with no musical experience could pick up on it and also just hear it a couple times and repeat it without any need to read the score or musical background. That was my experience when Greg took me to the mass at the cathedral was that um, even though I, I was reading, able to read the music and, and sing it, I found that I, I, I sort of really didn't need to after one time through it was, well, I, I got this, you know, and I could mm-hmm. see that if, even if you couldn't, you know, I'm looking at the, and, and, think, and thinking, well, okay, I have to go from a D to an F sharp and that's a major third. But even if you didn't do any of that, you could, you could follow the up and down of it, you know, which right. is how a lot of people who, you know, uh, do that. So, I, you know, that my, like I, I think I said in the podcast right after the, we went to the mass. At first, I thought, well, this is really simple, like really simple, and there's not much meat on the bones. I was, uh, but then, you know, that's not something my wife would think. That's something I would think. And then, and, and then I thought, well, yeah, but I think this is good. I, you know, this is, I think it's supposed to be this way. An interesting um, thing, Ed, when we sat down after that, your first mass and sat down for tacos afterwards, one of the things that I remember you saying is, why is the priest singing or why is he chanting? And I remember we had a conversation, and I can't remember if that made it into the recording or not, about my understanding, and Audrey, correct me in this, but historically, it was easier to teach the priests, uh, you know, a uh, thousand years ago, 1500 years ago, to teach them the mass or the parts of the mass, because you can remember, you know, melodies more than you can remember words, right? Like we can all remember a commercial jingle. And so you could... You could teach the parts of the mass and the responses, and people in a sort of pre-written culture, or they may was they are literate culture, but they may not always have access to to writing materials or whatnot. But you could teach somebody sing this, say this, say this, and and the responses. Do you have any thoughts about the history of that, Audrey? Yeah. So traditionally, like the whole mass has been sung, um, and we don't see that as much today, but we do see different dialogues or parts today. But it does really stand out when they are singing it because we can still understand them clearly. Um, usually those tones aren't overly, overly elaborate, um, and, but it still communicates that text in a, in a really neat way. This is the only reason I can say the, the 50 United States in order is because <laughs> I'm, I'm saying this. So I learned the song along with my kids, every, every one of them going through that class, you know, and, and I, growing up in the Baptist church and in the charismatic church I was involved in, we sang some songs that were just straight up scripture verses, put the music. And those are the ones, ones I can remember, even, even stuff that I would not have remembered, you know, um, Lift up your head, O ye gates, and be lifted high. You ever, uh, open wide ye everlasting doors, and the King of Glory will come in. Well, I couldn't say I couldn't remember that if I hadn't sung it over and over. So, I I can't remember the phone number of the place where I work, but I remember all the lyrics to Gilligan's Island. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. So okay. Next question. And how does? Let me start with you again, Ed. How does music fit into the larger context of theology? You know, I mean theologically from an evangelical standpoint what what is music supposed to be doing um how does it fit into our relationship with with god and and to the propagation of the gospel or worship i mean well like i think we've already practically i've I've said uh we've practically covered this already protestant theology um is expressed in music in no organized way because protestant theology is 
whatever church you go to, right? So, so it's whatever the songwriter writes and the theology in the music is then as varied as the denominations. And my experience has been that even then, nobody is policing it at all. Um, there's a, uh, as a quick example, there's a song that's very commonly sung. Um, you're a good, good father. It's a, um, and I love that chorus, but the verse of it is, uh, I've heard a thousand stories of what they say you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the night. And I'm thinking, so your theology is based on something you heard in the middle of the night? What? That's, I'm not going to make people, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that song when I was leading because I didn't want people thinking that that's how they could come up with what God is like. You know, there's, there's other ways, better ways to, you know, so that kind of thing is, uh, music. It's not that that's not organized, uh, at all. And every denomination in church then uses it differently. Right. Yeah. I, I, so I, my perspective on this is just a little bit because I was in seminary in the 1980s and it was the, I think the tail end from my perspective of sort of a lot of the denominations in the U.S. Because like by the 90s, a lot of denominations over certain theological issues, you know, women's ordination and homosexuality, and they just kind of began to fracture and blow up into a million smithereens. But I can still remember being in seminary, the denomination that I was a part of, that we had a, a hymnal. And it was like, there was the blue hymnal and there was the blue Psalter hymnal. And then while I was in seminary, they came out with the gray Psalter hymnal and it was a big deal. And they had a denominational committee with theologians and musicologists and whatnot work on it for 10 years to pick all of these, you know, approved songs that you were supposed to sing out of the gray hymnal. And everybody hated the gray hymnal and one of the old, you know, blue hymnal. But once we all got out of seminary because of what was going on in the world, we all went out and said, no, nah, I'm just going to play whatever you know, right. we're going to do whatever and we're going to throw it up on an overhead slide anyway. And it all kind of went out the window, but there was at least still a sense of there was things that you were, that were authorized. Right. But in the broader non-denominational world, there is no denomination to authorize anything. Now, Audrey, that brings us to the, the Roman Catholic Church, which very much has a structure and a hierarchy and how right. does it play out? So certainly that structure um, is very helpful, and especially with all the the advice or, or teachings from the church. Um, but I'd say even still within the Catholic Church, we have those issues. I mean, if you open up our hymnal and everyone has their own hymnal, all of there's you know all of these hymns are approved, but some of them you look at the lyrics and you're like, wait a second, but what what is this? You know, and and lately the church has been better about that. Um, within the last year, the Council of Bishops came out and specifically called out eight or ten hymns that are quite common and said you know, we'd appreciate if you don't use these anymore because (laughs) it's not adequate theology, but they were very clear why, like this hymn expresses this, which we don't believe, or this, you know, so it really has also led to this re-emphasis of evaluating the hymn text, even of things that are quote unquote approved. Um, and just making sure it's, it's really what we're trying to convey or the best, the best way to convey what we're trying to say. Well, for my, yeah, I spent a number of years in in Christian publishing and publishers are in the you know, the crazy idea that they're trying to make a product that people will buy and they can make money. So publishers are always trying to come out with a new, you know, hymnal, a new guide, whatever we did to try to kind of crack into the market, find a niche, whatever. So, yeah, but so there is within the church then what I assume in the American church, some sort of a committee or structure that, that 
And then for you as a worship director, as a director of sacred music at a particular parish, what kind of guidelines do you utilize in terms of how you select music to play? Yeah. So I try to base a lot of things from the hymnal since that's what the people know and have right in front of them. Um, but then also part of the things that I choose come from my own experience in a variety of Catholic churches and seeing what has worked or what hasn't worked or just really beautiful texts or settings that I've come across that aren't in our hymnal that I think would maybe convey a message better than the version in our hymnal. Um, and so part of that is just kind of trying to take everything that I've encountered or, or like seeing, okay, we need a, a hymn based on this text and we don't like any of the ones in our hymnal or our hymnal doesn't have it and go out and look for one. So really it is kind of a continuous um, trying to find that best method to convey, um, but definitely kind of starting from the hymnal and, and going from there. Well, here's an interesting thing to me. Um, <clears throat> some Protestant denominations, older denominations like Baptists or whatever, uh, and in, in the charismatic Pentecostal world too, uh, they considered secular music to just be bad and off limits. You don't do that. I heard a woman I was warming up on a Hammond organ, which is a big rock organ sound at this big Protestant church. And I played a little bit of, uh, of, uh, foot stomping music by grand funk. Cause it would, it just sounded so great. And, 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 and one woman shouted from across the room, across the platform that we were, that I was wandering over into enemy territory. <laughs> okay. Um, but in the, in, in the Catholic world, my experience has always been fairly limited with Catholic Catholics, but that this music is sacred and it's set aside and it's religious music and it's God's music and you don't, and you don't violate it. You don't, you don't, you, it, it is what it is. It's set aside. And then they're perfectly fine with secular music as long as it's not, you know, debased or anything, but, but it's fine. And that music, because that music isn't, you know, I, my band, my cover band that I ran for seven or eight years, we played at a little church at an outdoor festival thingy at some little church down near Notre Dame. And the band that went on before us, they were just in this tent on the church lawn. These guys were really a really good blues band. And I've, I was really enjoying it. And, and the woman who hired me said, she's, do you like those guys? And I said, yeah, they're really terrific. I want to run over there and fire up my organ, you know? And, and they said, um, and she said, those guys all teach at Notre Dame. They're all professors or, or whatever. And I thought, you know, if you taught at a Protestant college and you did that, you're out. That, that's not going to happen. Well, fortunately, we have a uh, graduate of Notre Dame's music program to answer for us. So, Audrey, within the Catholic context, is there a distinction between secular music and religious music? And how, right, where are those boundaries? Yeah, I think sometimes... Um I think that's a hard boundary to distinguish. I think sometimes it's an easier boundary to distinguish between, well, maybe not. Um, I was going to say between sacred and religious, or there's a distinction that needs to be made or that we often make between um, something that's religious versus something that's sacred. So just because something speaks of God or has a religious text, we don't always just mean that automatically then let's put it in liturgy. It still has to kind of go through that um, evaluation and make sure that it really is appropriate um, and make sure that the music matches then the text that we're going to trying to convey. Um, and so I think that's, that's something I come across a lot with weddings, um, or funerals or, or different things where people are like, oh, but this song mentions God. And it's like, well, it does, it does mention God, but if you listen to what the song is about, 
that's not what it is. Um, or even with us, I think certain types of religious music fit better in other devotional practices, whether it's personal devotion or personal prayer or, or praise and worship adoration or certain things um, where it, it is those personal moments where it, if it makes it f- you feel a certain way and helps you connect to God, that's great, you know, and find those moments. And I have many praise and worship songs that I myself have those deep connections to. Um, but in the mass itself, we're not trying to chase that feeling. And so I think we try to distinguish for what comes sacred into the mass in that way, if that makes sense. Okay. Follow up on that for me for a second. So in the mass, which is the sacrifice of the mass, right? Yes. It's the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist or the liturgy of the word written and the liturgy of the word incarnate, however you want to think about it. But that is an, a, a, that is in a sense a sacrifice. It's, it's something that we offer to God. It, it specifically is, as you say, sacred. It's set aside which might be different than the youth group getting together for a youth group gathering and listening to guitar music or you and your Bible study or, you know, or a thousand other ways where you might want to listen to some religious music or music that makes you think about God. But there's sort of a specific, very specific sort of boundary that's put around those, the sacramental use of music. And I think part of that is also, um, because as Catholics with what we believe about the real presence of Christ, there's not a lot of religious music that conveys what we believe. You know, there's a lot of general themes that we agree with, um, but it's not necessarily specific to what is taking place in the mass at that time. I didn't feel at the mass, said this in the other uh, uh, podcast, I didn't feel like I was being played to at all. Okay. I didn't feel like anything was presented to me as if to say, oh, do you like this? Is it good? You know, do you like it? Well, if you don't like it, well, we can do another one. I felt like I was expected to, at the very least, accept this and consider it, maybe with my background, consider it a sacrifice. I don't know. You know, it's, 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 um, it is what it is and it's not up to me. It's, it's, you know, it's big, excuse me, it's bigger than that. Well, is it, and Audrey, you tell me, but in a lot of ways, a lot of the things that we would do in the mass, we would do whether there were people sitting there or not. Right. Right. Because right. there are rubrics to the mass. There are prayers that are said. There are chants that are done. Um, if the priest is celebrating the mass alone, he's right. going to do those exact same things. So in some sense, to Ed's point, the music isn't a, um, it isn't there as a show or an entertainment or nor is it even there really as a way primarily to engage people and draw them in. Right. It's something that you're doing because it's, in a sense, the right thing to do. Can you speak to that? Right, right. It is a way for them to participate actively, but we're not necessarily surveying them and asking for their feedback or their opinions. Now, granted, there are times when like, you know, if I pick a hymn and I'm like, okay, you know, that was a new one and that really didn't go well. I don't think, I don't know if we're going to use this one again. Um, So there are definitely moments of evaluation like that. But for the most part, um, it is kind of, yeah, planned and picked and they participate. Um, but we don't necessarily have that back and forth of, of trying to, um, yeah, get their, their feedback or, or engagement in that sense. So I have a question for you, uh, in, in, uh, directly in regard to that. So you are, you are looking, you are sort of watching the response then, right? Of of people to music in, in, in situations where you have more choice to make. Right. Um, how, how. Uh, critical is that, uh, you know, uh, does a poor response from the audience 
obviously you just said, does it change what you, what you pick in the future? Um, and how much do you expect people to go along and, you know, Right. Right. No, um, I definitely pay attention to the feedback, at least sometimes when I can or see how much they're participating. And so there's been once or twice when I've done something and I've been like, I, you know, don't know if I would do it again. And part of it's my cantors have been like, that was, you know, really not easy to sing and unlyrical. And like, they just, they had a hard time with it. And I heard that across the board, but a lot of times when choosing something new, I'll use it a couple times before I make that judgment. Um, because sometimes it takes them a couple times to learn it. Some, sometimes people just don't sing regardless of what you pick. Um, so really it's kind of a hard balance to find. Um, but usually I try to do it a couple times and see that by the end, you know, have, have they been participating more? Does this make more sense to them? And usually the answer is yes. Um, so a lot of times, um, it is interesting to see their reaction, but also giving it time to sink in because it is new and different. And especially jumping into my role where, it's been kind of a 180 shift from the last music director, especially in the very beginning, most of what I was doing, they weren't familiar with. So I wasn't getting a whole lot of participation or it was been a very gradual. And we're at the point now where there's a lot of participation, um, but there is still a lot of things that I do that are new to them that I don't always expect to be new to them, if that makes sense. Hmm. Interesting. What are some of the maybe unique elements between say evangelical contemporary worship and Catholic worship? Um, one of the things that strikes me is that in older Protestant worship, right? I mean, what you might call it, so like the classical denominations, right? The Lutherans, the Presbyterians, whatever you had choirs and there was a sense that you were, you had choral music and you had this because I think historically, and Audrey, you taught a wonderful class that's in the Lane archive about sort of the history of hymnody and these things. And so, you know, at the time of Luther and Calvin and these guys, they were taking the Catholic tradition and then adapting it. So there were still a lot of similarities and connections in some respects. But over time, the sort of notion of a choir performing has gone away and it's been replaced by the praise team, right? So can you talk a little bit about why you have a praise team? Like if I go to a contemporary uh, Protestant church, there's going to be seven or eight people standing up there in a line with a microphone swaying and singing or whatever. Why are they up there? Well, it's an interesting, this thing has evolved over quite a period of time. And um, I should point out that in, uh, Probably since the 30s, uh, there have been bands on stage every week at black churches. You go to a, a, a gospel church like that, they, like they invented it. You know what I mean? And, I, uh, and it's hugely influential. So then in, you know, and then in the uh, early 70s, it was, uh, there were, you know, Larry Norman and Love Song. Some of these early Christian acts were... Um, it was scandalous, but it made it, it's made its way so into the church. So it's evolved. So now it's the reason we do it is because we do it. You know what I mean? It's, it's a cultural thing. Now it just is. Uh, that's what's expected to have a band up there. Uh, the, the, but the, it's, it's also changed from singing out of a hymnal. Now we sing along. You, you know, you look up, the words are up at the screen. So people's, people's, uh, uh, eyes are up front now. And so it does feel a little more like I'm a little more involved with what's going on on stage. And I'm being 
The people in the band are are modeling what they want the people in the audience to do. They want them. See, okay. To- see, I was going to say in my time in that world, my impression was that one of the big reasons for having six or eight singers standing in a line was it allowed me to sing along with them like I'm singing along with the radio. Like as I'm going in my car and I'm listening to, you know, whatever it is I listen to the car and I start, you know, singing along, it's easier to sing along when there's six or eight voices that are over microphones really loud. And it sort of prompts me to kind of, you know, be drawn in if I sing loud or don't sing loud or if I don't sing anything versus if you didn't have those people up there and you just pointed at the congregation and said, everybody sing, right? like they wouldn't do it. Well, now it's this, now it's this thing, you know, um, uh, in a band, in a, in a, in a setting like that, which I'm still doing off and on as a volunteer, we're, we're only doing songs that people already know, or most of them already know, or that are, you know, so, so we have to have a band to make that happen. And now it's, um, it's, it's one thing feeds the other, right? Now it's, well, what are we going to do next week? Well, we have a band. What are we going to do with the band? We're going to do band songs that we heard on the radio. And, and, and now it's like, you know, um, we can't get out of it. But if you didn't have those six or eight lyricists, I mean, singers up there, and you just like played the instrumental part of it and pointed to the congregation and said, now you all I see what Sing. you're saying. Yeah. The, the, in, in that setting, the singers are very definitely leading people directly into it. And you're singing along just like you would in the car to, to your favorite song, whatever that is. Now, Audrey, we have in the Catholic Church cantors and you have choirs. Talk about a little bit about the functions of those and how you see they might be similar to or different than the evangelical world. Yeah, similarly, uh, the role of the cantor in the choir partially is to lead, to encourage that participation, and then partially is to do certain parts um, of the Mass um, that either are set aside for them specifically, like the responsorial psalm, or just different moments that they can sing, um, and the congregation can just actively listen. So part of it on on hymns and stuff, we have the cantor up there leading, um, but we're definitely encouraging the people to sing. And that's something that I have to remind my cantors is like, this isn't your performance. Um, we're trying to get the people to sing. You're helping them to lead so that they hear that voice and that melody um, and, can, and can have that guidance to sing along with. Um, but then on certain things like the psalm or, or, or other moments of the mass, it is that moment where they're singing and we're just kind of listening. And then we respond with that refrain or, or other part. Um, and similarly, the choirs, um, they really help to lead the mass parts and the, the hymns and they can add harmony as well. So, you know, to add some, some, some more warmth and, and richness to the sound, but then they also have moments where they sing their choir piece or different text or, or other part of the mass that maybe the assembly wouldn't be. Historically, did the people sing? Like if I went back a thousand years, because when I've been to either Latin masses in Europe or, you know, basilica or cathedral masses and Real traditional places in Europe, um, a lot of the mass is performed by, say, right, the whole area in the apse, you know, behind the, uh, behind the altar, you know, traditional church is the apse, or it's just called the choir. Right. And there's just, you know, a choir up there. And right. they're just, right. they're like singing the parts of the and mass they do and everything. they're doing all this. And the people kind of sit out there, maybe they don't even know the parts of the mass if it's being done in Latin and they just kind of watch. Right. Is that kind of it? How, how did yes. it go from that to sort of the secular participation or not yes. secular, but I mean, but uh, like more uh, congregational yeah, participation. Yeah, yeah, yes. Right. Yeah. So no, historically the mass was 
especially from the earliest days done by a small school or a small choir. Um, and maybe over time, some of those things were, were gradually picked up by the people, but it's really with Vatican II that we see this huge shift where suddenly it's all in the vernacular and so much of it is trying to, to, to be given to the people in so many parts. And so we see a huge shift in how the mass was structured in that way and almost a, not disintegration of the choir, but a lot of the choir's responsibilities were shifted to the people and the people are seen as the primary music minister. Um, and they have a really important role to play within that. It strikes me now that I'm thinking, I just had this thought that we're, when we don't have choirs in a church like uh, an evangelical church, we're, we're missing out on centuries worth of really good music um, that you just, that you just don't hear. And there's a, there's a, uh, that's, that's a, it's a problem for me when I hear, I, I want to hear some of that. I, 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 and I, I never do, you know. We're, uh, we're getting to about the length of time to break this episode, but I want to keep going. Um, so what I want to do is ask each of you just one more question or ask one question, let each of you speak to that. And then we're going to break and keep the conversation going and we'll make that a part two episode. In the part two episode, I want to talk about some of the practical challenges that music musicians and music mass, uh, pastors and sacred worship directors and all that, that they, they practically face, you know, and the, the practical aspects of your job. But here, here's the question I want to leave you with. So how do you know within your context that you're, you're doing it right or you've done a good job or you've, for lack of a better word, succeeded? Um, Ed, you talked about when the people feel like they're engaged. I mean, how do you know that you're doing it right? Uh, I would say 95% of that is how is the audience reacting? What is participation like? What can you visibly see from the platform? How are people engaging? Are they, are they singing? Are they clapping? Are they raising their hands? Are they, you know, um, and then, and then a little bit of it is, um, does this, does this music take the service that week uh, to the place we wanted it to go, which can often be very different week to week. Um, that in the end, no matter what else we said, we were, however else we said we were grading it. That's what we actually graded on was audience participation. Um, I even had a sort of a joke, uh, uh, you know, a point system, you know, uh, hands in the air, six points, you know, uh, people closed their eyes, crying was 20 points, you know? Um, so yeah, that's basically it. It was audience. People response. were singing with their eyes closed. You, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> so Audrey as a classically trained, um, accomplished, uh, sacred music director, how do you, how do you, how do you evaluate whether what you're doing is the right thing or you've done it well? Yeah, I think there's two parts. I think the first would be just on in the planning and in just like looking at the choices. Does it make sense? Does it match the readings? Is it liturgically appropriate? So like, does it check those like initial boxes um, that like the church would approve? And then I think in your particular context, um, one, your relationship with your priest and making sure you and your priest are on the same page and about, about your role with the music and, and how he sees that functioning and, and being accepted. Um, and then I think part of it also has to do with slightly, you know, are the people singing along, but not, not quite to the same extent. And then I think with instrumentalists or choirs or organ music, just like um, 
kind of a standard of excellence or standard of beauty, making sure that what you're doing is done to a certain level so that it's properly conveying um, the message. Because it's like, even if you pick all the right choices, if your choir sings it terribly, you're not getting anything across. So really making sure that what you're doing is done well, whatever it is that you're deciding to do. Okay, quick follow-up. I said that was the last question, but here's a follow-up. <clears throat> so to the extent that what you're doing is art, mm-hmm. and we look at, obviously, truth and goodness and beauty as, you know, primary qualities, you know, that come from God. You know, as an artist, how is it different than you being a painter or a sculptor um, saying, I created something that was beautiful and sacred for God, right? right? That's kind of how you're seeing it. Right. And... Right. Yes. And then, but Ed, you're like more like, did I, did what I make sell? I mean, that's a crass way to put it. Right. But. We, we, you know, we, we had a, we had a whole team that picked a lot of this stuff together, but, but, uh, it, we were going so fast. It was a new song. It was, it was a different offering and a different, a walk-in song, prelude song every week. It was a large part of my time was spent trying to cook that up and I had to write arrangements and I had to, you know, all that. Um, so it was, uh, I lost my train of thought. This is a function of my age. Here. Um, <laughs> well, that's, that's a great transition because one of the things I want to talk about in the next session is the practical challenges that you were talking about that before right. you lost your train of thought, uh, the practical challenges for, um, you know, music leaders and churches and some of the generational challenges as we sit around the table and represent, Audrey being a different generation than yourself or maybe myself, uh, talk about how some of those generational challenges play out for, for leading music in the church. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Okay. One of the best ways to learn more about Catholicism, its beliefs and practices, saints and stories, heritage and culture, is to visit the places where the Catholic story actually unfolded with someone who can explain it, answer your questions, and help you apply it to your life. Especially as a part of a group of pilgrims that are sharing and supporting and praying for each other as they discover together. That's why the ministry that produces this podcast One Whirling Adventure offers pilgrimage trips. I'll be your guide and teacher, unpacking Catholic faith, life, and heritage for you in some of Catholicism's most significant sites. If you'd like to join me for a pilgrimage to places like Italy, Ireland, Israel, or France, visit the website oneworlingadventure.org to see the dates and details of upcoming trips. That's oneworlingadventure.org and click on the travel tab at the top. Let's discover our Catholic faith and heritage together. Thank you for listening. Considering Catholicism is produced by One Whirling Adventure, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a simple mission to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. We depend completely on your generous donations. Learn more and consider supporting our ministry by visiting oneworlingadventure.org.